welcome to the 12th Wiki Game Guides Comcast. I'm Simon Wu, and unfortunately, Alex Miller is traveling this week, but thankfully, we have uh, this week with us one of the people that you'll be seeing more often these days because he's joined our Comcast team from the community. Uh, who's That's John Phoenix. Hey, Internet, what's up? Yeah, so we're really glad to have him on board with our team, and hopefully he'll be joining us with the Comcast more regularly at a bit more variety. So, again, this is the ultimate way you guys can join us, but obviously you don't have to do that much. You can always comment, you can always email us, you can always send, leave us an iTunes review. And so, on that spirit of community, we're going to start with our community callback segment. Like you said... I, you know, we're, this is a very community-driven podcast. Please bring in your messages, and hopefully we can even have some of you on the air. So, Simon, you want to go ahead and start? Yeah, um, I just remind people that our email address, if they want to contact us, is game-insight at outlook.com. We also have a very handy uh, comment submission form that'll go to our email on our website, gameinsight.org. And so we'll start this week with Solifluxion, keeping it alive, as always, with his comments on the podcast. He says, nice idea with your own website, although it did mess up my podcast subscription a bit. iTunes had to download the last episode a second time before it could download this one. And we've had a bit of trouble migrating everything, I think, right now, for whatever reason. The feed isn't communicating with iTunes, so there's no album art. I'm trying to see what I can do about that one. But uh, thanks for that comment. And at, I hope the PC won't lose its soul, uh, I agree. While becoming more like consoles might help the PC regain a larger role on the market, it will most likely result in a simplification of games. After all, the developers would have to make games controllable with a limited number of buttons, like we've seen with Mass Effect 2 over Mass Effect 3, magic spacebar of gameplay. Even though Mass Effect 1 came out on the Xbox 360 long before it came out on the PC, and still had a much better button layout on the PC than the sequels. I just want the PC to still matter. It's sad when games like Red Dead Redemption only come out on the consoles. Yeah, I I agree with that. There's a I can definitely say that. Uh, actually, there's a recent game I've been playing. Uh, I I will definitely admit that I'm very much an all-rounder. I'm a big fan of the Transformers. You know, besides that, we'll leave it at that. But a recent game that's been coming out has been the very well done games by Half Moon Studios and Activision, which was Transformers: War for Cybertron, which came out about a year ago, and the most recent one, Transformers: Fall of Cybertron. Now, they were fantastic on the consoles, but again, one of the biggest complaints I heard was that the PC version was really, really uh, cruddy. And like like uh, he was just saying, the controls were very difficult, um, and frankly, even the on, there was very little online support. Um, and I do agree that as the PCs are bringing to ports, it's becoming much more difficult to, you know, have more of these complex sort of PC-only games, like back in the 90s where we had Quake and Unreal Tournament and so forth. I believe it was it Unreal Tournament or Unreal Championship. Man, that's so far away. I can't, I can't remember it right now. But the, the, the idea is all the same. And I feel like the surge we're seeing right now in uh, PC gaming is 
basically because the console is so outdated right now that to get the best graphics, you just have to have it on the PC. Plus, just it just so happens to coincide with a surge of PC-exclusive titles mm-hmm. like StarCraft. Uh, the next World of Warcraft is about to come out. The Old Republic, Old Republic. Diablo, all of these games. All these, uh, all these big, um, all massive MMOs, uh, massive RPGs, real-time strategy games. You know, StarCraft, StarCraft Two. All these games are very going to have a very big home in the PC because it can handle these massive servers where we have several hundred people and all live and simultaneously. But again, there is definitely becoming the simplification of the games. It's still something to watch out for, especially as the new con- new generation of consoles are going to come out. Yeah. So, and then he says at Microsoft points that whole discussion. Uh, for me, the whole system isn't very comfortable. I don't have or want to have a credit card, so I have to buy Bioware points on Amazon. And even when I've put up with all this, I still have to face the fact I'll lose some money because there are always some points left. Say I buy 20 euros worth of points and use them to buy two DLCs. I will end up with about two to three euros worth of points that I can't use for anything. In my opinion, they should add PayPal support for the direct purchase of content and leave the points as an alternative for people that want to separate their PayPal account or credit card from services such as the Microsoft Marketplace. And so for some context, uh, this this was a discussion we had on the last podcast. It kind of evolved from, well, all these hack it, all these services are getting hacked and randomly we came up with the suggestion that Microsoft Points actually was a good idea because through uh, prepaid cards, you're able to not put in your credit card information, which was one of the things that we thought was a, a plus for Xbox Marketplace. Yeah, and i like to go ahead and just put this on the record. I'm much more of a console person than I'm a PC person, but I, I do agree with some sentiment because I have this similar problem where you know, I I have to purchase about for when well, I'm only about twenty euro. I mean, twenty points short uh, from getting a certain DLC. I have to go ahead and purchase six five hundred eighty more than I definitely need. And then when I need to buy something else, that'll be probably twelve hundred. There again, there is that issue. But at the same time, this is it's also I guess you could say like uh, Simon was pointing out is that there is a sort of security built into that. Uh, but so it's a give or take thing, like most things. John, you want to take the uh, first one we have for our short takes? Um, sure. All right. This was from John Taylor, and he says, "Mobile is the new PC." Says Epic. Even they were going to post some um, videos of a new iOS uh, called Horn that uses the U- the Unreal Engine three, and it's one of the best looking fully three D games I've seen so far. I still don't like the gameplay for most iOS games, but Horn is a big step in the right direction. The proliferation of mediocrity and having to wade through mountains of it to find the true jams. This is definitely a problem with any online social service. When you have zero barrier to entry, a $200 capture card, and a good PC, garbage content flows like the sound of Capistrano. I definitely can understand that. You know, I've been having the issue as well where. I'm looking for, you know, the big gems, and then we have all this crap everywhere else, part of my language. 
Um, but definitely these kind of games are definitely worth eyeing for. And especially when we're using for well-known engines like the Unreal Engine. I think of, I don't know if you remember, Infinity Blade, which was an absolutely gorgeous game. I couldn't believe that it was on uh, the same, it's using the same processor as like my iPod and my iPad. Um, but again, there is that worry, I guess, with the internet, just like the internet, you're gonna, to find the real gems out there, you're gonna have to get through a lot of garbage and so forth. So, what would you say, Simon? Well, he was quoting basically some parts of, uh, the short takes, one of them a headline, and the other one part of my opinion, and, um, I, I mean, having wrote the opinion, it's what I think, that basically, we're talking about codcasting, where any person is able to take uh, basically what is the theater functionality in Halo right now, but then able to capture it uh, more easily than they have before and record you know, their own thoughts on the match, the guides. And what we're seeing, what we're going to see is that so much of this stuff is going to be diluted because as soon as you give someone tools to make it really easy... Everyone thinks they're an expert. And of course, Wiki Game Guides always has the chosen experts uh, who are best at the games, best at the guides, and always will continue to be. But it's, it's just going to be a problem because when everyone is in that guide-making mentality, even when you've played like one game, you think you've, you know what you're doing, uh, and it's just so easy. Like, press X, upload, send it, um, and everyone's got a YouTube channel now for their, their own podcasts. It's going to be really hard to figure out where to go for you know the best guides, unless you go to Wiki Game Guides, in which case you know where to find it. I, I definitely agree. I'm definitely seeing that now um, as I look around on the internet. When you know when I when I like to find some good you know you know achievement. Guys, I'm trying to look for something, you know. I usually go to, like, Wiki Game Guides or something like that. But when I just do a random YouTube search, I mean, all this clutter, all this garbage. But, I mean, that's the thing about the Internet, especially with the rise of YouTube, is that everyone is given this chance to actually put stuff out there. And that can be a good thing. You also have to remember that it's also a bad thing. It becomes, like Simon said, very diluted and so forth. Although, it, I guess there makes it all the more... uh nicer when you find a little gem among those videos. So our next comment is from Scumbag Ben, who is basically the guy that's holding down our short takes comments. He says, always interesting, and the popularity of torrent of games on torrent sites is astounding. Luckily, my PC can't run most modern games. Winky face. Yeah, w- this was in response to a report by Ubisoft that it has a 93 to 95% piracy rate on its PC games, which is pretty astounding, but also, unfortunately, pretty common in the industry. And as I mentioned in my remarks on that, uh, Savat Yearly, one of the leading uh, guys at Crytek, reported that he had something pretty similar uh, up in the high 90s in terms of piracy rate, which is sadly another reason that PC gaming is kind of, uh, you know, hasn't taken off as much as consoles have in uh, recent times, is because if you do an economic calculus on this as a company, why would you put so much effort into that when you have a 
closed ecosystem and guaranteed profit uh, on the console side. Sure, there's something to be said about modding your Xbox and everything like that, but that's really hard, right? You can't just download uTorrent, go to the Pirate Bay, download, boom, there you are. You have to take apart your Xbox, do the DVD drive, software, etc., and then you can't play Xbox Live. And that's also one of the uh, big barriers on consoles. And you can play on PC with a pirated copy. And so that's what makes it so popular. I can't see anyone getting really thrilled about playing the campaign over and over on, basically, even if they got it for free, on their console. Yeah, I definitely... This is a big issue that I have. I mean, this is... I mean, piracy doesn't just affect video games. It definitely affects movies, TV shows. As as I consider myself an equal opportunity nerd, I could definitely see this, especially, you know, in this piece of games and video games, with this sort of generation where we have everything here on the internet for free, so why shouldn't we get the rest of it for free? That mentality continues to pervade. Again, that's, I guess, why some people... For, and I guess why the industry for consoles continues to survive because, like Simon said, it's pretty difficult without some real foreign knowledge about the hardware and the software of the consoles to be able to modify it. It is very tragic, but it's a big, big part of a really big problem. So there's also the issues of how to counter it. I mean, we all remember SOPA uh, from a couple months ago, and we also how negative that was where it was trying to do the right thing, but may have gone a little too far in giving, you know, perhaps a little too much control for the opposite side. This is an ongoing debate and definitely doesn't just affect video games, but a lot of the internet communities. There's also something to be said about the impact of anti-piracy measures. I know that when I legitimately buy a game or an operating system or anything else that there are so many hoops that I have to jump through, you know, the genuine key advantage, authentication, everything like that, making sure I have the disk in the drive, which kind of is annoying because I have a computer without a disk drive anymore. It's just something else dangling off the side. And that's a whole other discussion about as more and more computers ditch the disk drives, uh, what kind of verification you have there. Obviously, Steam has some authentication. But my point is that if I just torrented it off the the pirate bay, uh, all those security features would be removed, and it would be actually a simpler install. I feel like by adding so by throwing so many security measures onto a game that are basically instantly cracked by hackers, it really has very low deterrence rate. They only punish the people who actually buy the game. And that's something they'll have to, I think Steam has done a good uh, job of solving it because it's tied to your account and things like that. Um, But that's something else that they have to look at. And so we finally end uh, our community callback segment with an email. Hey guys, great podcast. It's professionally different from most other podcasts. I have a question that I wanted to hear some other opinions on. What do you think about the recent closure of online? I read your brief opinion on it when it was breaking news, but what are your thoughts now that you've given it time to sit and a buyer to be revealed? And um, I'd just like to mention that 
Uh, thank you so much for that comment. Uh, that's exactly the idea of uh, the philosophy on both the short takes and the Comcast. Short takes responding immediately, Comcast letting it sit, uh, letting the dust settle, and then taking a look at it. And this is actually now um, one of our major topics for this week. So you will be one very lucky customer. We'll get onto that in a second, but we're going to finish our community callback segment. And we're going to move into one of our, I guess I've called them interstitial segments now, which is the one that was originally suggested by Dixicle so many podcasts ago. And that is uh, where we talk about what games we've been playing since the last podcast. So, John, if you'd like to take well, a stab at it. Is, uh, well, it's kind of my first one. So, I do have to admit there's a bit of irony. I've been the whole summer, and I've only really been able to play maybe one or two games. I've been playing Halo Reach. I'm a big Halo fan, so I've been playing a lot of that. Uh, but the most recent game I've been playing, again, like I've said before, is Transformers Fall of Cybertron. Again, I'm a big Transformers fan. For me personally as a fan, it's a really great game. They do a lot of stuff with the storyline. You have Peter Cullen, the original voice actor for Optimus Prime, as his voice in the game. The ability to transform at any point you want. And a really good story as well. But gameplay-wise, it takes a, lot of, takes a lot of the good stuff of recent shooters. It has sort of a third-person perspective from and cover system from Gears of War. In multiplayer aspect, there's definitely the customization and sort of game types built from Halo. It has a horde-type mode called Escalation, and they're all really fun and really enjoyable to play with. I Well, I don't have my game with me right now, but it's definitely a game, even if you're, if you're a Transformers fan, I highly recommend it. But even if you're a bit of a casual gamer, I would definitely go and play because it's a nice little game before, you know, the big the big games hit, like Assassin's Creed 3 and Halo 4 and so on and so forth. Dan had great praise for the game on the latest Two Chimps, so it's definitely something you should uh, check out if you haven't already. Now, I have been continuing my Fallout New Vegas run-through on the PC using an Xbox controller, and uh, getting pretty close to the end game, although obviously I've been being my RPG OCD playing self, which means I have to do like every side quest and do everything in the best way possible to get the best ending possible, you know, maximum XP, everything like that, explore every location. So um, I'm kind of getting there, but bogged down. Uh, I'm at here, and this is just thinking this is another game that's on my. A games I'm at some point going to have to play. It's a very long list. I still have to beat Revelations for Assassin's Creed before the third game comes out. It, I, I played around with Fallout 3 a couple years ago, but I haven't been able to touch New Vegas. Let me tell you, I think, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I'm sure I have on the podcast before and I can't remember it. But um, I'm actu- I've actually moved to D.C. now and uh, playing Fallout 3 recently. It It is kind of strange like oh there's the monument that i just fought three super mutants in and completely bombed out oh that's where i was ambushed by ghouls uh this is kind of creepy because no one's in the subway station i'm here alone what's going on um but yeah so that's what i've been doing since the last podcast i like to make one note about that where in sort of playing games and seeing them in reality 
Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the chance to go to the city of Venice. Beautiful city, you know, beautiful location and fantastic. But one thing, you know, around this time Assassin's Creed 2 had come out, me and my brother, who had also played the game, were always going around, and we were surprisingly telling our, you know, our family, like, oh, there's the Rialto, which was actually not the original Rialto. There used to be a wooden one there, and so on and so forth, with, like, the Piazza San Marco. Um, oh, I can't think of the top of my head. Like I said, the Rialto, the Grand Canal. I mean, it's nice to see these games have been able to not only be just a nice outlook for us, but also to actually teach us a few things. And the Assassin's Creed games have to be give very good praise for them doing the extra mile, being giving at least some good details about these sites and what they were like in their time period. Right. Uh, so now, uh, thanks for that comment. That was really insightful. We're going to move on to our uh, first big topic of today, which is on live dies, long live on live and uh, so a brief history of the company it was announced in 2009 and they planned to launch in winter of 2009 but they only finally got it out uh, in summer of 2010 and most famously their product offering was the one that we all cared about which is the cloud gaming wherein all you needed to play uh, like crisis for example uh, is a good broadband connection because all the rendering is done on their servers and only the basically the monitor, anything that's being displayed, is streamed directly to you. And also, less known because it was m more or less a new feature, they had a service which could stream Windows 7 using the same technology to, say, your iPad. It's called OnLive oh. Desktop. I didn't, I didn't, that, that's really neat. I could definitely use something like that. Yeah, and we'll get to kind of the ramifications of that later. But um, a few weeks ago, they folded and they created a new company, also called OnLive. All the existing shareholders, I think, lost everything in the weird way that they did bankruptcy in California called ABC, so something for the benefit of creditors. Um, mm -hmm. And all the assets were initially bought by someone like a guy, that's all we knew at first, who eventually was revealed to be a guy called Gary Lauder, who runs his own, I think, private capital firm. And so uh, my initial thoughts on this was when I first heard that OnLive went bankrupt and had been sold, uh, as readers of our short takes will undoubtedly know, I thought that it had clearly been bought by either Sony or Microsoft. And uh, side note, this is probably going to be the start of many short takes articles that we then bring on the podcast a few weeks afterwards. If they're big enough news, if we think they have big enough ramifications on you know the industry, and because the patents and technology made it the obvious choice at the time, both companies, especially Microsoft, are trying to bolster their cloud gaming play. We're seeing this with more robust marketplace features, Bing search, so that it aggregates all their service offerings because they have, I don't know, one trillion now, and as well as cloud saves. And um, so. And I want to make one thing. If you all remember what uh, Microsoft announced at E3 this year, they're cross platforming with Windows 8, you know, 
And especially as you just mentioned with the ability to stream to the devices like iPads, this is definitely what Microsoft I I see is trying to do with Windows 8. And so it would def Microsoft, like you just said, would have been the obvious candidate to buy on live. Yeah, they would have been invaluable in that aspect. But it also could have been the natural next step for PSN, Xbox Live Marketplace, as well as other next-gen consoles to include on-live functionality where games can simply be streamed down because it just provides more options, right? You can instantly start playing a game. And I don't mean just the convenience of not having to go to GameStop or wait for Amazon, shop the Amazon link at the bottom of every Wiki Game Guides page, uh, to be delivered to your door. Because what if you say, I'm really impatient, let me just pay uh, the fee, and then, bam, it's you're playing Call of Duty Modern Warfare 4, right? Don't even have to wait for it to download. Don't have to wait for UPS to get to your door. Don't have to drive out to GameStop. It's just there. It's just more functionality, more choice for customers. And it makes sense because uh, Microsoft and Sony, being the people that they are, trying especially Microsoft with all these streaming services, Netflix, Hulu Plus, HBO Go, ESPN, da-da-da. YouTube. Well, it would just be natural to say, why don't we also do it for games? We got it for movies and TV shows. Games now can be streamed as well. And they can also, because of that, they have more control over, like we were talking about before, um, you know, DRM, and control of how those games are, where you're, like, uh, being able to only have just being able to play that streaming wise and basically just have the image of it and not the actual rendering of it that makes it gives them much more easy control over who actually gets it and preventing it from being you know put it on the web and torrented exactly but unfortunately this fantasy did not pan out and it was sold to again some guy Gary Lauder and the thing was that Throughout its entire lifespan, OnLive to me just seemed like one of these concept companies whose entire goal is to just be bought by another company for the idea of it, right? Like Skype, it's a great idea and it was bought by Microsoft. So it's like one of those companies. Um, but let's discuss some of the problems with the service as it existed. John, you can can you name a few you think? Um, well, one of them uh, would definitely I I can sort of agree to this, that broadband was just not there when it first launched. Um, I mean, it was very wide, I think, in sort of the major cities, but it just for most people hadn't gotten to the point where it was much easier to have the broadcast and the higher speeds needed for the service, at least to at least to have it functioning, you know in a way that they could actually play. Yeah, I think that um, there are serious problems with people who had capped connections or high latency since that kind of destroys the streaming aspect because it's the lag that can't be fixed. And it's also really the people's perception of it. We didn't have streaming like we do now. Really, Hulu Plus and Netflix were just... I think small companies just beginning to start 
their streaming business, right? And we also weren't familiar with cloud syncing and cloud services taking up big parts of our lives yet. Everything was still primitive, quote-unquote, in those days when we stored things on, God forbid, our hard drives on the computer. Keep in mind that Netflix, you know, you know, it's been trying to become a streaming company, but I mean, from the very beginning, it's been kept, it does have the DVD service. In fact, when it tried to separate its DVD service from its streaming service, people, there was a bit of a backlash. And so they decided against it. And so to this day, DVDs are still, uh, you know, a big part of them. They're just coming a smaller, smaller part. But I mean, it's still a good livelihood and it's a good drawing for them. Yeah, that's a great point that that was really a bellwether on how far streaming services had advanced to that point that by distancing themselves from physical media, they caused all this outcry kind of indicated to the market as a whole that it wasn't there yet. We weren't there yet in terms of broadband speeds. You could probably make an argument that maybe even today, I mean, Netflix has, has put in much more resources into streaming. But even still, I still know a few people who still use Netflix just for DVDs, just because it's convenient. They get there really quickly, and I mean, you can always update it, update it all at the same time. I mean, it's because of Netflix that you know Blockbuster, Blockbuster, and a whole bunch of home videos, uh, you know, rental shops, which I grew up with, and I'm sure you grew up with, Simon, have just gone out of business. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's see. Another reason that they might have run into trouble was um, there's too little selection. It took time for the best titles, the AAA titles, to trickle down from consoles and PCs to this service. I think the top games on there right now are Assassin's Creed 2 and Batman Arkham Asylum. Great games, but old games. I definitely agree. I mean, and this is something that has happened not just in uh, this for this system, but if you know about BlackBerry and the problems they're having, you know, they're teetering on, you know, bankruptcy and so forth, but they have a similar problem where, you know, as they tried to develop a copy of the App Store for Apple, they tried to, it was called BlackBerry App World, they had the same issue where they may have had a few big um, things, like maybe, of course, Angry Birds and Netflix, but in variety, really, there wasn't just many you know, apps for them to use. And, you know, the Android app store had the same thing until that really got caught up. And now it's a major competitioner. That's sort of a success here. But again, this is, this is a similar problem with many sort of streaming and more mobile uh, assets that become where it becomes really difficult to survive if you don't have any big popular titles or or apps, or you just don't have a good variety. Exactly. So I feel like that would drive away some of the, what could have been the most ardent supporters of this, like those tech enthusiasts who love to game. And But the thing is, they live on the cutting edge. And while the service and the technology they use might be on the cutting edge, the games weren't. And so that was a key problem they had there. And that not only goes for games, but uh, for DLC as well. For the few games that are actually out there, many of them only have a fraction of the DLC that is available 
for the game on console and PC. So it's kind of all aspects. And um, another reason I, I felt that this was a company just waiting for a buyout from a bigger company was uh, the paradox that it faced with server farms. It had a couple of co-location facilities, but they said publicly that you have to be within a thousand miles of any one of these facilities to get good service. Being on a, I'm thinking being on a college campus, I know exactly how that feels. You know, if you're not near a router, it's like, good luck. You know, it's like trying to find bars out in rural areas, it's, which is also a problem out here I have on campus. Yeah, so operating all these servers is expensive and definitely one of the reasons the company folded. You have to buy the servers, buy the space, buy the air conditioning for all of that. It just adds up. Uh, but companies like Microsoft, Sony, even Apple, when we'll get to that in a second, Apple, uh, these companies all have server farms crisscrossing the country, all over the country, major cities, everywhere. It would be nothing for them to tack on or change the purpose of a few racks. And uh, that 1,000 miles, like, yeah, it's a, you can do it within 1,000 miles, but if you're on, like, 996 miles away, you know, you can tell that your service probably is not going to be as good as a guy who is only 50, 25 miles away. And so if you're much closer to these server farms, then you're going to have a much better experience. And these big, big companies have the infrastructure and resources to make that happen. And like Simon was just saying, we're going to get on the dark horse, I guess you could say, for buying this, which is Apple. It would be pretty easy for them to get hardcore gaming really fast and on cheap. Especially now that, um, you know, that's one thing I guess that Microsoft has definitely not had but is now getting with Windows 8 is more hardware. And, you know, with the Xbox, they've definitely gotten very good, uh, let me say, gaming street cred, so as you would say. But with the, as they just done well with the Apple TV, they could just have uh, another division with games in the App Store. And, you know, they already have achievements, in fact. They have achievements, they have the social aspect, which has sort of trickled into uh, the uh, the Xbox system, but for the most part hasn't gone off really well. I think Apple has done really well in that aspect. Yeah, it can. I think that this could be just an aspect that they fit onto Apple TV, which is just this tiny hockey puck-sized device. I mean, and ninety-nine dollars, which is fairly nothing for most people. You, that's about thirty more dollars than a typical, you know. Triple triple A game. Exactly. It just it would be a subdivision of the game section on the App Store, and as uh, John you mentioned, there's already an achievement system, a social aspect, and you know, given the integration of iOS features and look on Macs these days with uh, OS X Mountain Lion, OnLive fits perfectly into that with Apple's crusade to eliminate optical drives. We mentioned previously uh, in a previous segment about optical drives, DRM, that sort of thing. John, you mentioned that if uh, if OnLive basically eliminates that problem because all the content is on their end, you're paying the subscription fee. There is no piracy 
that is possible there. Uh, you know, and, you know, most people say, I could definitely say, oh, if Apple has control, you know, there's not much freedom, not much variety. But then you also have to keep in mind, they clean up the clutter. You know, as we were talking about back in the comments and the short takes, you know, gets rid of the stuff you don't want and gives you the stuff we they know that actually works. So, like I mentioned before, it's a give-and-take situation. Yeah, it also goes back to earlier podcasts where we talk about making computer games instantly play like consoles. Now, we know that Apple has this fanaticism with making things simpler, making things simpler, making things faster, easier. And Apple wants to avoid being connoted with PC gaming because PC gaming to them means these ridiculous guys who buy $10,000 Origin main gear custom setups, have like 10 monitors, and spend hours buying like and te- you know kitting out their computer with the latest video cards, constantly buying the new ones, so on and so forth. And um, they want to avoid ins- like that old problem, especially with installing games, right? They want to avoid being like PCs. They want to make the process simpler. And what better way to make the process simpler than just playing the game? Exactly. And I want to bring up another point where as Apple has just tried to avoid it, you know, trying to make things simpler, you know, make it easy for people. It's why they've done so well with casual games and so forth. Because, you know, someone who is, oh, doesn't know about, you know, actions per, what the word term actions permitted mean, could pick up a game like Angry Birds and What's My Water and, you know, get through the game in a, br- in a breeze. And and so it's made Apple difficult to get into pe- to get with uh, fans like of hardcore games like StarCraft II, um, you know World of Warcraft. These people who you know where they have to have customizable systems to run these games, who you know modify them modify them systems on the fly, trading out graphics cards and memory and so on and so forth. Yeah, you could have the Apple version of the game where you don't have an options menu for graphics. Like, you, you can't tweak resolution and anti-aliasing, antistropic filtering, etc., etc., because it's all just maxed, because the server can handle it. Don't worry about that. We'll, you, we'll take care of the processing. We'll just stream down the best possible-looking content to you using, like, Apple Stream games. I don't know what they'll call it. Like, uh, I, I game. I, 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 I don't know, maybe uh, I stream or something like that. Too bad they already used the term airplay, because that would be, like, perfect. Uh, yeah. Well, oh, maybe they can relicense that. It's like iFi or something like that. I don't know. Well, you see, people can, companies can retool a name, like Microsoft retooled yeah. Surface from a table into a tablet. I'm sure they could do something. Yeah. Although, I would like one of those tables. Those tables are really neat. Sorry, getting a little off topic, but they're really from the playlist. Yeah, so here's an important aspect to consider. Um, OnLive had service agreements with several uh, carriers with uh, so that you could get deals for service, like with Internet companies, so that it was OnLive was part of it. Because streaming down all that content takes a lot of bandwidth. So this way, you had a way to kind of uh, integrate that in, reconcile those problems. Um, 
but what else is there? They they might get a bump because the next gen consoles will focus on cloud gaming, which always gives on live the chance to say we were here first. You know, we did it before everyone else did, or have the uh, tech press bring up the example of on live. So when the Xbox V next, the PS4 tout the ability to stream games, cloud save games in a new and innovative way, the tech press is going to say, oh yeah, and don't forget that uh, OnLive did this in 2010, and they had such and such. So that's that's a way they could get some instant recognition, a slight bump. Uh, OnLive, I think, if they're going to try and survive moving forward, they also need to achieve release parity with the other consoles. We mentioned how lack of selection and dated games uh, and lack of DLC for those games was a serious problem for the entire ecosystem. And there has to be an incentive for people to get it. You know, it's a, you know, it's, that's a big thing now. I mean, every time you go to GameStop, you want to pre-order something, you get ooh, check out this new armor, or hey, you get to play as a Harley Quinn, or, you know, hey, you want to dress up like Adam West Batman? Buy it here at GameStop. I mean, that's a big thing uh, that draws people in. Although, I'm not sure how that will work on a streaming site. It might be, they might have an incentive like, you'll have more, you'll have sooner access to DLC or something along those lines. It also needs to be integrated with other products. Like we're seeing with uh, this Ouya mm-hmm. Android thing that's taken off like a wildfire for whatever reason. We'll get to that in a bit. But they can take cues from other people. Netflix is on every single device these days, including your toaster. OnLive needs to be the same way. They need to be on Roku. They need to be on Boxy. All of these service, Apple TV possibly, so on um, and so forth. Especially now, it's like the TVs, a smart TV, Samsung, um, Sony, uh, Google TV, those apparatuses that have been coming out recently. Having those available now, and those definitely are having the same problem right now. There's not much variety right now on, any, on those systems. Being able to be on these systems where you don't even need, you know, like the smart TVs, you don't even need a separate peripheral. You just... just it's on there on the TV. I mean, that's definitely how they, they will get people on it. I mean, that's how Netflix really got big. It's because, you know, on every sort of device, it was there. It, you know, you could always download it. Uh, probably the only thing that's missing with it is a controller. And so perhaps a bundle deal, right? You get one of these smart TVs. You, it comes with an on-live controller. You get a Roku device. Uh, maybe you pay a nominal fee, like fourteen ninety nine. And then you get the on-live controller. But it also needs, like how on smart TVs they run Android, each, uh, each section of content, like Hulu, Netflix, gets its own little integrated hub. Um, on-live needs that as well. They need an entire place uh, and a compelling place for all their games and a great way to kind of advertise their wares, so to speak. Uh, so we're going to move now on to Ouya, which is kind of the darling of one of these supposed integrated devices we're talking about. And I mentioned in the short takes that this failure of OnLive might be one of the reasons, if not a reason, to 
take some wind out of the sail of basically what has been otherwise a meteoric rise. Uh, it's the little Android console streaming device, uh, which I think is very overhyped. Like, the Kickstarter generated way more money than original goal, and even though people knew they weren't going to get a return on it, they kept pumping money into it. And, you know, like both of these things, it's a very high-concept design that it could pay off, but it could not be. I mean, this is what most businesses are. They're most likely it's a start off to probably not make money. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little more um, positive about this. It'll be interesting to see where this goes because I we've seen this before with some other boxes. It's almost like a Roku for gaming, and I they definitely have fallen flat again. Like with online, very few choices and you know very limited access. You know this is going to be interesting to watch at the very least. OnLive was supposed to, like we said for Apple, give it, give the gaming aspect legitimacy, and we've yet to be seen. Uh, it's yet to be seen what this restructuring will do to that partnership, uh, as well as those with uh, with the carriers that or the wireless, not the wireless, the uh, internet companies that they partnered with, and so it could also. Um, have gaming as just one of two focuses and i say this because the other product which was new they launched earlier this year i believe at ces was on live desktop where the same principle of streaming was applied to a full operating system so people with ipads or other tablets could stream windows server desktops to their devices and this is really interesting to me because after you know, what we saw at uh, E3, what Microsoft is doing now with integrating everything from, you know, their Surface tablets to the Xbox, to their mobile Windows phones, where everything can be connected. This is a really interesting aspect that I'm seeing, to being able to access, basically, um, you know, maybe not, this is maybe not your desktop computers, but at least like your companies and business on your iPad or on your phone, that is, it's def and even for especially for gaming, I, this is definitely interesting for gaming where you're gonna there are definitely gonna be some there would be some I guess graphical and um, performance issues, but having that ability, you know, to basically control that is really interesting to me and. It, that's another surprise why I, micro, I didn't see Microsoft buy this just for that technology. As uh, as iPads get more popular and are increasingly allowed and used and even promoted at uh, enterprises, this could allow IT departments to have an easy compromise, right? Because right now they've been really mm-hmm. been squeezed by the executive who says, oh, this iPad is great. Why don't we have one of these for everyone in the office? And uh, the IT guys yeah. are like, yeah, there's security loopholes, no encryption. It's not a business device. Obviously, Windows 8 is going to fix that, but mm-hmm. we're going to stay on this topic. Uh, that way, they can say, okay, fine. We can do this because we can get a secure Windows desktop that we can log into, everyone can use in that sense. Um, and now people might be wondering, why are we talking about this enterprise thing? We're not, we would be incredibly dry if we talked about enterprise developments in technology uh, every other week. 
So I mentioned this aspect because licensing and hosting this technology for major companies like AT&T, IBM, Dell, could be the cash cow that could fund a loss-making game side, right? Like my, you know, Microsoft. This is it's been the Xbox 360, despite being very popular and very big, has been a big drop. You know, it's been it's been a big loss for Microsoft, especially if you remember a couple of years ago the whole Red Ring of Death uh, controversy. You know, I've lost a few Xboxes because of it. And they've given every, they had to get everyone two years extra warranty. That cost them several millions of dollars. So again, this is, you know, a good way to make back that money. That's exactly, I mean, you took the point out of, out of my mouth, but that's good that you mentioned that because I was going to say uh, on a previous podcast, we've talked about how uh, we might be seeing the demise of any company that has a singular focus, right? Like Nintendo just focuses on games. HTC just focuses on phones. Instead, uh, we see these companies like Sony, Microsoft, Apple, where if, if, a, if a section has a bad, if a division has a bad quarter or two bad quarters, the rest of the company makes enough money to even out the balance sheets. And if needed, pump it into that division to keep it alive, right? Uh, that's exactly what we saw with the Xbox those first uh, few rough years, and it's what we're going to probably see for time to come. If you see, if you have a company that does just one thing, and they start losing, they start losing badly. This is exactly Rim, maker of BlackBerry, their problem. Mm-hmm. This is what they're doing right now. They're going to the exact same problem. Yeah, so it's uh, it's tough to think about on live as the next uh, great thing that never was, but uh, it it may very well be unless something radically changes, like one of the things we described above, or you know something changes about how they operate, or they're bought out by one of these companies. Perhaps, for all we know, Gary Lauder is just an interim guy who sees an opportunity to buy a company. Uh, pump it up, and then sell it for much, much more. Because for all we know, he's getting a great deal on this technology. Uh, and there's something to be said about having these sort of concept companies, because these, without these, we, there definitely would not be some of the more innovative ideas. But once again, you know, they can't survive on everything. Once, this, once that bubble bursts, you know, it's probably not going to reform again. And once again, you know, it, and, you know, I am definitely not a business person. I barely can do my own finances. Um, but, I mean, the one thing, you know, it's better to diversify your portfolio, I guess you could say. And that's another why they need to have having these aspects of the server farms being a big income uh, production for these companies. Because uh, generally downsizing is the sign of very big problems at a company. Because you have the swirling toilet vortex paradox where you had to cut costs, so you downsize and cut jobs. But then you don't have as much market presence because you have no advertising budget. You have no R&D budget, right? You have no less operating mm-hmm. budget, so you lose money. So you repeat the process. So you keep getting smaller, smaller, shrinking, dying, just like RIM is right now. And Nintendo, if they don't do something really big really soon, might very well see them there. They're just at the tip 
of falling into the toilet. The Wii definitely it definitely boosted them up a bit, but I'm not sure if the Wii U will do the same thing. Yeah, we've discussed that in in great depth in other podcasts, but uh, that that's it for our on live segment. I hope that the listener who asked for our thoughts on it is satisfied with that um, because we're going to move on to our second interstitial segment, which is our the one submitted by Rare Daniel and uh, kind of we use Game Minder for. Now, this is the one where we discuss uh, what games we're interested in playing that are coming out in the next few weeks until we record the next podcast. Now, nothing this week strictly. Maybe The Sims uh, 3 expansion, I think, that was coming out. But in just a bit, and probably before we'll record the next one, there are a ton as the fall release season really yeah, yeah, starts this, going. We're this, coming well, out of the summer the exact, drought. Yeah, this is the this is the this is like the beginning of the summer for movies. For for fall, it's definitely video games. This is the big release. We have all the triple A titles. I have in front of me a couple of things that um, are really interesting in just the next two weeks. Uh, so the first is I am alive which is the Ubisoft survival horror game that is going to be released on the 13th. you have something more to say about that? Yeah, that's been on Xbox Live Arcade. That's definitely been one of those games I want to play because I'm definitely interested in sort of this, a little bit of this sort of post-apocalypse, but sort of survival aspect. So far, as I've seen, this is a very good game. I mean, there's a lot more emphasis on surviving, I mean, actual finding... I guess you could say if you are a fan of Daisy, this is definitely sort of like kind of game for you where you actually have to scrounge for uh, materials for games. You have to use your rifle sparingly and your gun sparingly because bullets are a dime a dozen. Yeah, well, firstly, I'm Alive is going to be released on PC. Okay, okay. I knew it was out for the Xbox Live Arcade. I did not know it was out going to be out for the PC. Yeah, correction there. It's actually the 12th. Uh, Wednesday. So Wednesday, on okay. September 14th, we have Black Mesa, which is the community recreation of Half-Life using the Source engine. That's going to be released. Oh, that's cool. Is, is that the one that's been making use of the new Source filmmaker? Or am I thinking of something different? You might be thinking of something different. I mean, yeah. this is this has been in development for... I think almost eight years at this point. And they're trying to use more advanced capabilities of the new Source Engine to create just a better game with the idea and the legacy of the original Half-Life. And so we're continuing to see this great community at Valve continue to do these mods, which many of them take lives of their own. I mean, that's the story of Team Fortress, isn't it? I mean, that's how Team Fortress became popular. I believe it was a... Mod on um, Quake, was it? I could be wrong. The internet can correct me on that. But I mean, it was just a mod. uh, I believe I talked about this actually in the short takes not too long ago, where I think it was on DayZ, which is also a mod of a uh, game called Arma, where a fun little game type or fun little mod that has become a life of its own. In this days, with the generation of Kickstars and so forth, it's becoming very easy for those mods to become that step to becoming an actual published title and actually still becoming popular. Exactly. So we have high hopes for
for this one because Half-Life is uh, revered by the gaming community in a way that uh, not many have. Um, and then finally, on the 18th, um, we have both the enhanced version of Baldur's Gate, which will be coming out, as well as, uh, really surprisingly, and I'm excited to see this, uh, Borderlands 2 is going to Oh, yes, that's the big one. I was just talking to my roommate about that game. That's a big game that's coming out right now. Uh, I, I, have to, I have to say, Borderlands 1 is definitely another game that I haven't had a chance to play, but I mean, I've heard fantastic stuff about it. So it's definitely going to be, you know, one of those games I'm sure I'm going to play, and I'm sure Borderlands 2 will be on there. Yeah, exactly. And Borderlands 2 will be out for PS3, Xbox, and PC, and the enhanced version of Baldur's Gate will just be out on PC. So now we're going to move on to our second major topic for tonight, which is the new fandom factor in video games. So, John, would you like to take the lead on this one? Like I've said before, I'm when it comes to being a nerd and a geek, I'm very equal opportunity, I, you should say. So I have a, uh, a hand in everything. Definitely video games, as I'm on here. Um, big fan of anime, uh, otaku. I've played a Final Fantasy game or two in my time. Um, the, you know... You know, I'm a bit of a Doctor Who fan, I will admit that. General sci-fi. But in, in all of these aspects, the internet has been able to provide, especially since YouTube um, podcasts have become big, more instant feedback in, to developers, to producers, um, to companies, um, in both good and negative aspects. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right, because we're seeing now, uh, even respected and venerable, uh, well, venerable, maybe questionable, corporations like CNN, I think, is the big one, instant response, because they do, like, Twitter segments and whatever. Right, right. It's, it's an I entire... I mean, CNN was, you know, CNN was the first big 24-hour news-breaking channel. Uh, I mean, that... And that has definitely had an effect on news and journalism in an aspect. So I mean, the internet is doing that for a lot for me for multimedia in and of itself. So and uh, there, and there, like with most things, there have been good things about this and then bad things. But on the good side, I'm good. What I'd like to focus on is uh, Halo. What they've done with in the Halo series, especially with Halo Three and Halo Reach. I'm going to admit, as a Halo fan, one of my favorite things of Halo is actually watching films and videos that have been done completely in the game. For those of you who don't know, that is known as Machinima. It dates back to Quake games, but Halo uh, has definitely become the new medium for it. And Bungie did a really good aspect of recognizing the effect of Machinima has and the use of Machinima in their games and built in the theater mode into Halo 3 and brought it back again for Halo Reach. Since that time, the use of it has gone huge. There's tons of more uh, machinima uh, productions going on. You know, I guess like we commented earlier, it has kind of diluted it a bit, but there are a lot of good gems out there and so forth. But even just the doing the short little uh, videos or clips or screenshots had definitely promoted people 
into creating sort of little sub-communities. Now there are communities that just do what I call Ford or Halo photography, where they find a, they use filters, they use sort of like Instagram, but within the game where they create sort of these surreal and sort of um, mind-bending images, and they share on the web. Uh, I'm sure you know about this, Simon. Yeah, definitely. Uh, The ability to take photos in Forge has been there for some time. And I was actually going to ask, you know, your thoughts on uh, how they how they took comments from the community for from Halo 3 put into Halo Reach. But also now what we're seeing is what we saw at RTX. He was there as well. Um, Yep. Uh, separately, what we but... saw for Halo 4 now, even more yes. input, even more features uh, yeah. aimed at the uh, base, the people who use it. Right, and another aspect I was going to talk about is Forge, which is the map making aspect of the game. Uh, and definitely, when Halo 3 Forge came out, it was very rugged, very, you know, rudimentary, you could say, but I mean, there was definitely, you know, a great factor built into that where people were making these fantastic maps. You know, they designed maps. I'm thinking of uh, Foundry, which was just designed for Forge maps to use. Um, Or just even, I guess you could say, these sculptures, which are some fantastic sculptures. But Bungie, as great the great company is, took in feedback for that and then developed basically the Reach version where it is Forge World, where they have these massive open, a massive open world, and they have tons and tons of pieces and tools where you can now modify the X, Y, and Z of these things, just inch it in just right and so forth. In fact, some of the basic maps that were shipped with the game uh, were developed with the same tools that is given in Forge, sort of the recreation of Blood Gulch. Um, uh, the recreation of Ascension, I'm thinking off the top of my head. Um, you know, so, and there, and the community has taken these tools in depth. And even now, you know, now it's been passed on to a new company, the Microsoft in-house company, 343 Industries. They've been taking in the comments as well, and they've been very good about that, as you and I both saw at RTX. Exactly. And, um, you know, there's a question here that's, obviously waiting to be asked is uh is minecraft also uh subject to this kind of user feedback in fact perhaps the ultimate way where everyone does their own mods contributes back to it right right i mean i think as i mean minecraft is probably one of the is one of the biggest i think biggest source game change i wouldn't maybe we're not sure if it's maybe too early to say a game changer but definitely has had a significant impact. We're not sure what kind of impact, but some kind of real significant impact on how to do these games. First of all, you know, they was always available. The game was always let out, even during beta. You know, they were usually DRM-free, so the game was yours to modify as you wish. It was very easy to, you know, modify the game, get mods in fairly easily. You know, for even more casual PC gamers like me, um, and even now, if that game is out and you know, there it costs about thirty dollars, which is really nothing compared to some games out there. 
being able to respond and the, you know, I guess Notch and Mojang have done really well with responding. What people have wanted, I think one of the most recent updates was um, you can definitely having a chest where you can have a chest and then being able to get it like when you're off miles away from where your original chest was. I believe the most recent update had the Ender chest, which is basically you can put objects in that and then build another Ender chest. And then you open that up, and the chest, the rest of that is there. Although there were plenty of mods beforehand, which did the same thing. And so I think we look at Minecraft as being the, I guess you could say right now, the pinnacle of sort of uh, developer, gamer, and fan relationship, where you know gamers were enjoying what, were liking what they got from the developer. Um, the gamers find a few things that could be modified, and then the developer sees those modifications and brings them into the actual game themselves yeah exactly um so these are basically good examples of where developers and the fan community have a very good relationship they are positively contributing back to each other um so on the flip side obviously there are some negative examples of this right and i hope you have you played the mass effect game simons uh oh yeah, I mean, if you've listened to the podcast, Alex and I have just nonstop mm. talked about the ending of Mass Effect Three. We've yeah, that's, discussed that's, that in depth, in depth with mm-hmm. John Tar, uh, run runs a website, uh, mm-hmm. among other things, and uh, really had a chance to kind of voice our opinions on that. Right. I want I, that, and that's why I wanted to bring up is that. You know, I I have to sadly admit I have not played the Mass Effect games. I'm you know, which is makes me question why I'm on this podcast to begin with. But it as watching this as an outside perspective, I mean, I can definitely recognize that the Mass Effect series have done incredibly well with giving you this this being about choice, being about you choose your own journey, and how well Bioware, the developer, has done with giving you that choice. And then with the end of Mass Effect 3, which frankly, when you're ending a trilogy, is always going to be hard. The players have felt cheated that they've been given very little choice to any of this game that has given you so much. So, I mean, and you can definitely see the backlash that has come from this, from this ending. I mean, Bioware said they've gotten a few death threats or so, but, you know, it's hard to take those seriously nowadays with... Every bad decision game that threats, especially for some developer games. But you can, that just illustrates the kind of really negative feedback this ending has gotten. I mean, you're the Mass Effect player. You said, I'm guessing you're not happy with the ending? Uh, well, you know, there are thoughts on this. Obviously, I think that the indoctrination theory has valid points. Alex and the other John vehemently deny that. We have our debates on that, um, but whether or not you decide to take the English class ending and read into things or not, there were obviously some problems there, some things that were lacking, you know, that they had to create the extended cut DLC. And then now this Leviathan uh, DLC, which in the short takes we briefly discussed, would feels like they're just trying to hit a sensitive nerve again before you've even put any painkillers on it. Like, whacking it again, basically hitting a hornet's nest, I feel like, by 
making you pay and then changing the ending, something that is still a very touchy topic with gamers. I mean, yeah, I mean, and this is something that I've seen before in some other medium, not just video games. It's, you know, where, you know, you don't like what you wanted, so they try something different, and then they don't like even that. So, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, Bioware had a huge uh, mountain to climb when it came to this game, and you can obviously see, you know, it did not end well. I'm now seeing, even now, that some people prefer the old ending to the new um, updated one. Again, but as an outside perspective, it's, Another, it's interesting to see how this instant feedback has changed how these, you know, can change the outcome of a game and how the people enjoy that game. If I, if you don't mind, if I go a little off topic to make a comparison, um, there, for people, like I've said before, I'm a bit of an anime fan, and one of my favorite shows was a show called Evangelion, which was a very high concept series. In sort of how this game was a high concept in gaming, giving you more choice, the show was sort of, if you've ever seen shows like Gundam or I guess you could say Transformers, where it was a deconstruction of that show, it was very sort of high intelligent, high uh, psychological breakdown of characters and so forth. And how the series ended, well, for one thing, they were kind of running out of money, so they had to work how the thing ended. Uh, but I, which I think they did really well with, despite the budget. But there was again this sense of backlog. They didn't feel like there's a sense of completion. It was sort of you know, you know, it, they didn't get what the fans wanted. Even back then, this was done in the '90s. I mean, back then we just had very rudimentary uh, message boards. But even then, uh, you know, the internet was there was a big backlash against that. So they had to create a new film. Uh, you know, two films, I believe. There was a one that was sort of just a retelling of the TV series, and then there was a whole new one called End of Evangelion, which frankly got even more flack. It was actually, instead of like Bioware, um, you know, trying to appease the players, it was more of a sort of, you know, tongue in cheek, well, if you don't like that, you're really not going to like this. And by the way, if you see that movie, it is really bizarre. So, you know, that side topic. But it's again, there's sort of, even back then, this was late, mid to late 90s, where that old, the internet has already, was already starting to show backlash, even in that small aspect. And now with YouTube, with Twitter, with Facebook, with this, and the power now that internet can have on these. Not just video games, but just multimedia in general. Developers and companies are going to have to pay attention to these, you know, to the fans and the fans that they create. Because if you piss them off, they're not going to buy um, the stuff, the you know, the merchandise, the games, the books, you know, the um, the the weapon props, the you know, the uh, keychains, the you know, wallets, and so forth. The merchandise that also makes them money. Yeah, and if I may add, I think it's actually even better that you haven't yet been able to play Mass Effect because that gives us uh, a different perspective because mm-hmm. we all see what what the uh, the big hoopla is about from the inside. We've played it, we've experienced the ending, we've experienced the ending DLC and the several attempts they've had to try and fix that. 
But I think what's interesting to to find out is that for someone who hasn't played it, who obviously wants to play it very much because it's regarded generally as a very good mm-hmm. franchise with great story, narratives, everything. I mean, it's my kind of game. I'm very much, I'm not a big fantasy person. I'm, I haven't really read like Lord of the Rings. I haven't seen Game of Thrones. But this game is very sci-fi, very sort of high-tech, sort of high-concept. This is my kind of game. So, I'm, you know, it makes me go more surprised I haven't played it. But. Well, I think that now that you have from the outside, you want to play this game, but there's obviously a huge problem with it, and that's the ending. You obviously don't know what the ending is. Maybe right. Have. I, 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 haven't, I haven't... I try not to spoil myself. I know, I know there's, there's some point where you, don't, you only have a small amount of choice, and frankly, it's like a tiny choice. Exactly. Where, and so my question... But I question, don't know the actual details for that. Well, my question to you is that, uh, really, like, what does it do to you uh, in your perception of the game to have a game with so much negative press around it? And now, it's not like you just played the game fresh and then you discovered it. You're going into this game and you know that you're probably going to be let down. Legions of fans like you have been let down. There's a very negative, uh, dark cloud surrounding it. Is that going to mm-hmm. color your playthrough? Are you just going to go through it, waiting for it? It's like, okay, getting to the end, this is like, I'm going to be set up for disappointment here. Right. Does that really kind of color your expectation of the game in, in a way, to have all well, that negative feedback around it? Well, I guess, you know, there's, I guess you could say, for one thing, there's a little bit of a, it's a sort of a bit of a paradox, but how this controversy has actually gotten me interested in more in the game than it has before. I mean, going back to what I was discussing about the anime Evangelion, you know, I had sort of, I, I hadn't seen the anime before. I have known about it, and I've known how people have said about it, but I've also heard a lot of negative stuff about it because people thought this show is not as good as people say it is. And, you know, because there's also a little bit of another aspect is that there's a lot, for this series, there's a lot of merchandising. I mean, very much the Star Wars effect for this series, where it doesn't have anything to do with the games. I mean, I'm sorry, anything to do with the, the series itself, but it's just very good at getting the merchandising out. But I don't, if, when I play the games, I know that this will be in there. It, I really don't let that put that in perspective. I don't put that when I pull in the games. If I know, like I did with the series, I had known that there was a big controversy that people didn't like it. But, as I said before, I actually enjoyed the end of that series because I thought, for what they did, it was really good uh, in keeping with the philosophy and the psychology they had, the concept they were going for. And I think they pulled it up really well. Even with the alternative ideas they had for the film the next film, which was in of Evangelion. When I play the games, I, I won't try to put this in perspective, try to put it against it. Again, video games and film, it's two different sort of ways of thinking. You're actually, where you're sort of watching the story in a film or a TV series, like an anime, uh, you're actually the character. So there's, in a video game, so you have much more vested in it. And so you definitely feel something more backfired. I've definitely felt that in some series before so personally i think i would try to keep a little more open perspective you know at some point like both things 
I'm going to play it. I'm probably going to have a great time. I may not like it when I get to this point, but maybe, maybe I'll maybe like Evangelion. I'll think, you know what? That was a pretty good ending. I actually like the ending. Sounds good. Um, so we're coming up on 90 minutes, and we're going to have to leave it there. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, obviously, soon, uh, when Alex is finished traveling, perhaps we'll be able to get the three of us all together uh, for the next podcast. And I'd just like to remind all of our listeners to comment below, send us an email at game-insight at outlook.com, leave us an iTunes review, uh, rate us five stars, and we'd really appreciate it. So uh, signing off for tonight, I'm Simon Wu. And I'm John Phoenix. All right. Have a good night, everyone. (laughs) 